morning is the, the day in the life of our church where we have our annual meeting. Simply a time for us as elders and deacons to report to you where we've been this past year and uh, where we are going as a church. It's an opportunity for us to report to you in detail the financial situation of the church, which you'll be encouraged by, and to give you a vision uh, for the church as we take place. This meeting will take place shortly after <clears throat> our service this morning. Uh, we're going to have a, a short break, and then we're going to come back together. And I would really encourage you all to hang around. Um, if you're visiting today, it's really it's a great opportunity for you to stay because we'll really lay out for you many of the things that Rock Valley Bible Church is all about. Well, in light of that meeting today, I, I thought it would be good for us to um, reflect and think about the issues or what's going on at Rock Valley Bible Church uh, And in so doing, what I I want to do is ask a question. One question of us is this. What are the core beliefs of Rock Valley Bible Church? What are the things that grip us, our convictions that we have? In other words, what are the most central beliefs that we hold as a church that, that cause us and drive us to do the things we do? What are our beliefs that drive our methodologies? It's important to keep our sights on these things. Without keeping your sights on these things, you can be lost. As many of you know, I spent uh, a portion of last week out in California. Um, I was out there for a wedding, and uh, it was really interesting. We got picked up from the airport, my mother-in-law, and I offered to drive. And so I was driving home, and um, I I didn't really know how to get home from Oakland Airport to Danville, where they live. I was driving out of the airport and up, and um, my mother-in-law was so happy to see us that she was just talking, and she wasn't paying attention, and I continued 880 north rather than taking 580 west, and we had to go through downtown Berkeley in order to get back on a 24 and then go back home. And I remember that evening, Ivana had a little chuckle about how absent-minded her mother is getting. On our way back then to the airport after a couple days, Monday morning, we got up 4 in the morning, and um, we're driving back this time. My father-in-law's driving. And he's just cruising right along, and uh, 24 to the airport's going that way, and he kept driving just straight on ahead. <laughs> we missed the turn, we tried to get back on, and we missed going on, so we had to go south, and then come back up again until finally we could get back on again. Now, he might have an excuse, it was 4 in the morning, um, but later, as Savannah and I were sitting in the airport, we were just kind of chuckling at, at just how absent-minded he's getting in his old age. So we come back home to Midway Airport, and uh, we had parked our car in uh, long-term parking, and uh, we, we, we determined that I was going to leave Yvonne and the kids with the luggage here in the airport, and I was going to go jump on the shuttle bus to get there. And so I dutifully did my manly job as a, as a husband and went out there and got on the bus and waited about five minutes, and then the bus started taking off, and I noticed that something was wrong because we were riding the bus and our van was right there and we went past it and we went under the railroad tracks we went up and we, we went another five to seven minutes down City Road. It's like, what's happening? I got on the wrong bus. And we went there and we sat and we, as soon as we got to that uh, parking lot, I said, um, excuse me, I'm, I'm parked at, um, I think it was E7 where I was parked at. He said, oh, you got on the wrong bus. You just wait and I'll drive you back to the airport. So we were under a time constraint and um, I missed my bus and missed coming back and finally though the guy was gracious we drove back and saw the van the second time we stopped the stop I said can you let me out I'll just run across the street and by his grace he let me out he said just be careful of traffic so Chicagoland traffic right there on Cicero Avenue I think I was running across the road in order to get to uh, my van 
How easy is it to get lost when um, you lose sight of what's driving you and what's driving us through to get on the right bus to get to the right place? That's my, my aim this morning is to address the core beliefs of Rock Valley Bible Church. Now, there are many things that we believe. Like I think about the Apostles' Creed would be great core beliefs. I'm not sure how many of you grew up saying the Apostles' Creed. I did in my church. If you have, let's just say it together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Christian Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. It's amazing. We said that once a month at my church growing up, I still can remember it. Parents, think about that with your kids. How important that is. But with all these things, we could take every single one of those. God the Father Almighty, yes, we believe in Him. And that's a core belief. We believe in Christ and everything He was. Those are core beliefs. And the Holy Spirit and the, the universal church and the community. All those are good things. But you know, that's really not my aim this morning drive at those things. What I'm looking for this morning is to crystallize for you some of the some of the key beliefs we have which have a direct correlation to our methodologies in our ministry. Right? A direct link there. And so what, I, what I've done is, is tried to crystallize these things down into three key things. And these things actually are, are things that, that uh, you know might differentiate us from other churches. Some churches might embrace some of these things. Some churches might not. But at Usher Rock Valley Bible Church, they are core to everything they do. So here's my first point. We believe in the power of the Word. Believe in the power of the Word, right? If you have your Bibles, right there. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. I read them earlier in a prayer time, um, but I'll just read them right now. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. In these words, you get the sense of the power of the Word of God. It's living. It's active. In fact, it's comparable to a sharp sword that can cut and slice. And the writer here, though, says it's sharper than any human sword. The reason is really simple, because a human sword can only cut to flesh and blood. But the Word of God cuts deeper than that. Cuts into your soul, cuts into your spirit, and can divide between those things. Just as a surgeon can take out his scalpel and, and, and separate the bone from the marrow, so also can the the Word of God penetrate deeply between the soul and the spirit. It's able, even it says, to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It speaks to the power of the Word of God. And we believe in the power of the Word. It's foundation to everything we do. We, we aren't Rock Valley Bible Church by accident. We have Bible as our middle name for a purpose because we believe in the power of the Word of God. 
What's interesting here is I've chosen this verse to kind of center our thoughts as we think about this because of the context here in Hebrews 3 and 4. In the context here, the writer has been expositing Psalm 95. He's been using the Word of God to convict the hearts of people. In fact, if you look there at chapter 3, verse 7, I'm not sure how your Bible differentiates it. Mine's like in all caps. Verse 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 are verses from Psalm 95. 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. In verse 13, look what he says. He picks up on this word today, which is in verse 7. And then he quotes verse 7 and 8 again here in verse 15. And then 16, 17, 18 are explaining the implications of the things that he just said. Don't harden your hearts when they provoked me. And they said, who provoked him when they had heard? Was it not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And who was he angry with for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom do you swear they would not enter his wrath? Wasn't it with those who were disobedient? He's just taken expanding on Psalm 95. And he comes with a punch in verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And then the implication comes in verse 4. Therefore, they heard the word, didn't believe. Now, indeed, we've had good news preached to us, just as they. But they heard the good news preached to them, and they didn't believe. Oh, how important it is for us to believe. How important it is for us to take hold of this. And then in verse 3, he again goes back to Psalm 95. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's how Psalm 95 ends. Here's a conclusion. They didn't believe, therefore they're not going to enter the rest. And so what the psalmist says, or what the writer of the Hebrews says, is that we need to believe so that we will enter that rest. It says in verse 5, then he quotes it again. They shall not enter that rest. And then again here, look even in verse 7. He says, okay, David fixes this day today. And he goes back to Psalm 95, verse 7, and speaking about how it's today. And then he goes through and thinks about, well, if they didn't have rest and David gave them rest or was offering rest some 400 years later, that rest still offers to us today. And the exhortation is today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. The summary is really in verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that none of you will fall through following the same example of disobedience. The days of Moses were filled with signs and wonders and miracles, but still the people failed to believe the Word of God. And the writer of the Hebrews here says, verse 12, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so I trust you see the point? He's taken Psalm 95, exposited it, and said, this is powerful. You need to look at the Word of God. Right in the context here of exposition. I don't think it's any accident at all that in chapter 3, verse 7, the writer says, just as the Holy Spirit says. It's the Holy Spirit who wrote Psalm 95. Yes, it was David, but it was David, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. 2 Peter 1.21. And as he did that, as he spoke God's word and as the, the writer of the Hebrews took God's word and exposed it to the people, he said that's where the power comes from. The power comes when you take God's word and you merely expose it. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit then is, who is let loose to, to speak for himself the same message that he spoke before. God's word is powerful. It's living and active 
sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, it is interesting. It's, it's, it's almost unbelievable. These people in the time of uh, Moses experienced unbelievable miracles that God did with these ten plagues. Ten times, upon command, the plague came and then it stopped. And it came and it stopped. And it came and it stopped. It was discriminating many times. Unbelievable. And then, when they finally get out of Egypt at the Red Sea and they're scared and God parts the Red Sea and as soon as they get out of the Red Sea they are there in the wilderness they're thirsty and there's a water but it's bitter and God makes it sweet so they have water and they're out there and they're hungry they said oh wish we go back to Egypt and God provides the manna and then they're thirsty and God provides water out of the rock and so all these great miraculous things and what they do they didn't believe and the writer of Hebrews actually brings it back issue was they didn't believe God's word. They didn't believe Him. They didn't trust Him. God's word, I believe, is more powerful to speak than miracles speak. Peter said that. Second Peter chapter 1, Peter makes a powerful statement regarding the power of the word of God after explaining his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. Right, Seeing Christ transformed and changed. Hearing a, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him being a wide witness of His majesty, hearing the voice of God. You know what Peter says in 2 Peter 1? It says, we have the prophetic word made more sure. He could have said, listen guys, I had this experience. He didn't. He brought it back to the prophetic word. I think it speaks to the testimony of the power of the word of God. At the end of the day, it's the word that is more powerful to create belief than any miracle or any experience or any heart-touching story that will be told. It's God's Word. So one of the core beliefs of Rock Valley Bible Church is the power of the Word. And here's an implication. With each of these core beliefs, I'm going to give you an implication. That's the belief, and here's what drives our methodology. Therefore, we as a church preach His Word expositionally. We preach His Word expositionally. I simply mean that we will work long and hard Make sure that we expose the truth of God's Word and let it loose to accomplish His purposes. I mean, that's, that's what expositional preaching is. It comes from the word expose. And that's what we're trying to do. Expose the original intent of the author by explaining the passage, interpreting the passage, and then applying the passage as is appropriate. The fundamental aim of expositional preaching is to hear God's original message as it comes to the text and then bring it to the people just like the writer of the Hebrews did with Psalm 95. He wants to take it and work it and understand it and then press it on the people. That's expositional preaching. It's different than topical preaching. Topical preaching takes a topic and says, okay, what does God's Word say about that? Kind of pulls into God's Word encyclopedic fashion and pulls out just truths about what God's Word says. Now, there's power in there, but I believe there's more power to do this, to tell the same story that the Holy Spirit is telling. And that's what expositional preaching is trying to do. It's trying to say, okay, what's, what's the story being told? What's the letter being written? What's the truth here? Let's take that and push it out rather than taking our topic and pushing it in. In that way, I believe God is fully able to speak. I think about, like, like here's, for instance, here's how some ways it might come about. Uh, like Luke chapter 15. Frank Yonke was here last week preaching Luke chapter 15 parable lost sheep lost coin lost son and um, it is interesting that the punch of that story really comes in Luke 15 1 
because it's told in the context of self-righteous religious people who viewed sinners with contempt. He says, oh, he's with sinners. It's like church people, perhaps, who view sinners with contempt rather than realizing that they have need of the gospel, need of mercy. And the application of Spirit's words come deeply and more deeply into our hearts when we pick up with Jesus' application and press upon all of us and say, well, how's your heart for the lost people? It comes more powerful than in other ways. It's simply saying, hey, we need to evangelize. Pick up the storyline. The book of Romans is often just preached through us a big doctrinal statement. The book of Romans is an evangelistic track. He's sharing his gospel that he wants to share in Spain and following. He preached through Romans, it should create an evangelistic heart in people. That's expositional preaching. 1 Corinthians 13 isn't a flowery, sentimental chapter on love. It's a sharp rebuke. People who weren't loving. And so this, you preach it as a rebuke. The Holy Spirit says, you've got the message right. And then he's free to, to take that message deep into our hearts. That's what expositional preaching is. And when you believe the power of the Word itself, you will seek to bring out its message most clearly. When you do that, the Holy Spirit set loose to accomplish His purposes. Many have given Charles Spurgeon the credit for saying this, the Word of God is like a lion. You don't need to defend a lion. All you do is let it loose and the lion will defend itself. And that's why we preach expositionally. That's why our heart and soul is that. And you find a church that doesn't do that, that doesn't want to just take God's Word and go out there. There's a church that doesn't believe in the power of the Word. Believe in the power of the magical preacher, the power of the illustration or something, the power of the testimony. But it's the Word where the power it is. Isaiah said, My Word which goes forth from my mouth will not return to me empty, accomplishing what I desire without succeeding the manner for which it was sent. Let me read that again. My Word which goes forth from my mouth, will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which it was sent. When God's Word goes out, it accomplishes His purpose. The purpose may not be exactly what our purpose is. The end result may not be what we want, but that's what's going to take place when the Word goes out because God's Word is powerful. And you know what? It, it doesn't matter whether a, a Christian hears God's Word or a non-Christian hears God's Word. It still has an effect upon people. That's the point of verse 13 here of Hebrews 4. There is no creature hidden from His sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. The Word of God works in the heart of a Christian. The Word of God works in the heart of a non-Christian. The Word of God is powerful. It can be used by the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. See, the only way people are converted to Christ is through the Word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. So as we're sharing the Word of Christ with people, that's the avenue of salvation. And that's powerful to take sinners and turn the soul back from a, a wayward way. That's what the power of the Word can do. It says in Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So King James says, converting the soul. Shuv, turning it back. right? Returning a soul. The law of the Lord can do that. As it goes out, it's the power of the Word. Evangelistically, in the power of the Word to believers, the same. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Right? So Scripture is applicable for us. It teaches us, it reproves us, it convicts us, it trains us in righteousness. The New Testament does that. 
God's word, whatever God speaks, does that. It's no wonder a few verses later, Paul told Timothy to preach the word. That's the way God works. And the word is preached and proclaimed. And I believe the best way to do this is for a church to be committed to expositional preaching, right? Endeavoring to unleash God's word by explaining its meaning, interpreting it, and then applying it to the hearts of the people. And so over the years, you will see us major on expositional preaching. Predominantly, we will go through books of the Bible, letting the message come out loud and clear. And we've done this historically at Rock Valley Bible Church. I think about, I look back on our website, rockvalleybiblechurch.org, and was looking through what have we preached through. And on First Thessalonians, we went through that. It took us 26 messages over a course of about a year. Even at that time, we weren't even meeting every Sunday. That was when the church was just kind of starting. And uh, we met, I think, three Sundays a month. And just going through that a little bit more slowly. And after we got done with First Thessalonians, we went through Matthew. It took four years to go through Matthew. 137 mass messages through Matthew. Just verse by verse, phrase by phrase, chapter by chapter. And we learned a lot at times. Seeing Christ, His role, His ministry. And just not, not leaving any stone unturned. Taking them all, looking at all of them. After Matthew, well, along the way in Matthew, we took a, a brief parenthesis through the book of Habakkuk. Because it was particularly appropriate in Matthew chapter 11. In recent days, we've gone through Colossians. Took 32 messages through Colossians. Then after that, went to Philemon, five messages. And then through Malachi, 11 messages. And now we're in 1 Peter. And I I hope that you see the power of expositional preaching when you say, okay, what's what's the message of 1 Peter? What is it? Suffer now, glory later, right? And that's the heartbeat of Peter. And I believe that's the heartbeat the Holy Spirit has for us. And I want that to be what we embrace rather than preaching about suffering and pulling all these things about suffering. That's what Peter was saying to suffering souls. And as we allow that to come through, it's going to resonate in our hearts by the Spirit of God. What makes preaching this way expositional has been the aim of these messages. I haven't tried to come up with a unique twist or thought on each of these passages that we've gone through, I've merely tried to take the Bible, expose it for you, get behind it, and say, okay, this is the Bible. This is what it says. And so you can see it for yourself. Because I believe when you see it for yourself, then God will work His work more powerfully than any other way. Now, expositional preaching doesn't have to be verse by verse, three verses a Sunday. It can go various different speeds. I mean, if that were the case, we'd never preach through Jeremiah because it would like take like ten years to get through Jeremiah. Um, and we'd never hit Isaiah, you know, we just never get to those things. And some, sometimes you can preach expositionally in big swaths. I think like Romans. I've thought before about Romans, 16 weeks, one week per chapter. Kind of gets you overall view of this evangelistic tract that Paul has written. It's kind of a, a good perspective. Um, I thought about that. In fact, uh, on one occasion we preached through the Pentateuch. About ten messages through all the Pentateuch. And I believe we did a good job there of, of taking what the message was there and interpreting it and applying it to us today. So you can take bigger chunks. But here's the idea. Here's the idea of expositional preaching. It's putting yourself in the mercy of the text and really seeking to have God's message come through untainted, unadulterated, and bold and clear because that's where the power is. Now, obviously... There's a place for topical preaching like today, all right? But it's not going to be our bread and butter. Today's like candy, all right? But we're going to live on meat and vegetables and protein. And it may not be the most flashy thing from week to week, but you know what? It is the best thing as you learn how to approach God's Word and how to hear it. We want to 
go through the text, allow the text to speak for itself. That's what the writer did here in Hebrews 3 and 4, just letting Psalm 95 be exposed to everybody. And that's what we want to do. So we believe in the power of the Word, and thus our diet is a healthy dose of expositional messages. Second, we believe in the power of God. We believe in the power of God. For this point, I want you to turn to Jeremiah 32. I want to look at one verse, verse 17. And now this is going to be totally topical because we're just going to mention this verse. I'm going to launch and then I want to give you six observations in general about the power of God. They don't come from this passage, but they're general enough. I think I'd rather approach this point systematically, if you will, topically. And I know you'll forgive me. Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. God, you're a creator, God. And the conclusion rightly comes, nothing is too difficult for you. God created everything. Nothing is too difficult for you. That's what it means to be a powerful God. It means to be able to do all things. It all comes back to the fact that He has created all things. Here are six observations. Here's my first. God is the Creator. God is the Creator. You can read Genesis 1, and uh, you can read about His creation. It's amazing. God says, let there be light. He just speaks from His mouth, and what happens? Light comes. He just says, let the earth sprout forth vegetation. And what happens? The earth sprouts forth vegetation. He says, let the earth bring forth living creatures. And what happens? By the word of His mouth, the power of God, the earth brings forth living creatures. Without hands, without test tubes, without beakers, without raw material of any kind, Paul speaks into being things that are not to be things that are. I love the story of scientists who came to God and told them they no longer needed Him. They said, God... We've decided we no longer need you. We're to the point where we can clone people, do many miraculous things. Why don't you just leave us be? After waiting patiently for the scientists to finish, God said, very well, let's have a man-making contest. Scientists with great arrogance said, well, that will be fine. The scientists, and the Lord added now, says, we're going to do this just like in the old days of Adam. Scientists said, sure, no problem. He bent down to grab himself a handful of dirt and God said, whoa, wait a minute. You get your own dirt. Right? Shows you the power of God in creating. <clears throat> we may be able to do many things, but we cannot create something from nothing. And that's what Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God, so that what is made was not made out of things which are visible. The things we see here now, God made out of invisible things. He made it, the Latin phrase says, ex nihilo, speaks to the power of God. And the creation gives witness to His eternal power and divine nature. Second observation, God rules over the objects of creation. In the days of Noah, God brought the flood. Very clear. The flood didn't just happen. Genesis 6.17, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth. When the plagues came upon the Egyptians, it was God who brought them. It's God who brought the frogs. It's God who brought the hail. It's God who brought the darkness. It's God who killed the firstborn. 
God controls the weather. He sends forth His command of the earth. His word runs swiftly. Psalm 145, verse 16. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts forth its ice as fragments. Who can stand before His cold? He sends forth His word and melts them. He causes wind to blow and waters to flow. God controls the snow. He controls the frost. He controls the thunder and the hail and the fire and the wind. God is powerful and controls all those things. The object of creation are under the sovereign control of God. Third observation, God rules over the animals. When Noah built the ark, the sense you get from Genesis 6, Genesis 7, Genesis 6, is that Noah didn't have to go out and say, okay, I've got to find two lions, you know, and hunt these lions and capture them in cages and then put them in. What happened? The lions came to him and the giraffes came to him and the horses came to him and the dogs came to him and the cats came to him and the mice came to him because God has control over the animals and brings them. When the plagues came, it was God who brought the frogs. It's God who brought the flies. When Elijah told Ahab there'd be no rain for three years, God told Elijah, you go and you hide by the brook Kareth. I'll have my ravens come and they'll bring you your portion because God controls the ravens. When Daniel was thrown in the den, it's God who protected him. Daniel's in the den. Darius comes, Daniel, are you okay? Expecting to hear nothing and Daniel replies this from the mouth of the cave. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me. God rules over animals. He's the creator. He rules over the objects of creation. He rules over animals. Here's my fourth observation. God rules over spiritual beings. That is, angels and demons. We often hear of God sending angels to accomplish His task. The angel came. He rescued Peter from prison. Angels will be the final reapers before the day of judgment. Matthew 13, 41. And God even sends evil spirits. God sends demons as well. They are under His control. 1 Samuel 16, 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrified him, terrorized him. Even Satan himself is under the rule of the Lord. Satan couldn't touch Job apart from God's permission. When Satan wanted to sift Peter like wheat, he had to first ask permission to do so. When Jesus commanded Satan to depart... He did after his temptation. And he always did in the earthly ministry of Jesus. Demons were under the control of Jesus. And God's ultimate authority over Satan is seen in that day when the devil is thrown into the lake of fire because God is sovereign over spiritual beings. matters not whether angels or demons. matters not even whether it's the ruler or the demons himself. Satan. God is dominion. He's powerful over that. Fifth observation, God rules over human beings. The mere fact that the Lord breathed life into Adam demonstrates He rules over man. The fact that He sustains man demonstrates He rules over him. Job 34, 14, 15. If God should determine to do so, if He would gather to Himself His spirit and His breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Acts 17, 28, In Him we live and move and have our being. We are sustained by the power of God. Your next breath is by the power of God. It's not merely physical life, though, that God rules over. 
He determines where and when and how long each of us live. Acts 17.26 God made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And here's what, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. He determines where and when, how long He determines. Psalm 139, verse 16. In your book, they were ordained for me, the days that were written of me before even one of them took place. God ordains who you'll be born by, where you'll be born, where you live, and when you die. God is sovereign over human beings. We may make our plans, but according to Proverbs 16, verse 9, the Lord, what? He directs our steps. God raises up leaders. He puts down leaders. He buries every king because His kingdom is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. He does according to His will among the inhabitants of the earth and among the host of heaven. And no one can ward off His hand saying to Him, What have you done? Daniel 4, 34 and 35. Because God is powerful. He rules over human beings. Observation number six. God rules over the souls of men this point where many people start to part their ways. But he rules over the souls of men. Listen to Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of a Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. It's the heart of kings. It's in the hand of a Lord. The king might think he's making a decision, but who's making the decision? God himself, who's, who's changing and moving the hearts like channels of water. Oh, the water's flowing, but God is the one controlling the channel. God moves his heart wherever he wants to go. That's what gives us great encouragement. I don't care who's elected this next election. He or she will be under the sovereign control and hand of God. Because God controls the souls of men. A great example of that in the case of Herod and Pontius Pilate. When Jesus walked the earth, the Lord's hands were all over these guys. The early church said this. They prayed, Truly in this city, O Lord, there were gathered together against you, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Herod was against him. And Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, all these people ganged up on Jesus. And then they prayed, they said, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Because God is powerful over the souls of men. Now, to be sure, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the Israelites, all in a hand, and the death of Christ were, were guilty of their actions, to be sure. But God is the great mover of history, moving the hearts of men to accomplish His purposes. And regarding your own, your soul, God rules over your soul too. If you this morning are a believer in Christ, it is only because God has moved your soul. It's only due to the grace of God in your life, overruling your sinful nature, giving you a new heart to discern the truth and so rightly believe. According to 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says, A natural man, that is one who's not been born again, one who's just a fleshly man, does not understand the things of God, for he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The only ones who can spiritually discern the truth of the gospel is those who God elects and changes their heart to believe. It's because God is sovereign. He's sovereign over our hearts too. None of us would ever believe on our own doing. God who rules. It's God who rules our souls. He's the one who, as 1 Peter 1.3 says, He causes us to be born again. As Jesus said, 
He is the, the wind, the spirit that blows where we don't know where it's blowing, but God knows where it's blowing and He'll fill the right heart. You know, we can take as much credit for our spiritual birth as we can take for our natural birth. None. It's all of grace. Rock Valley Bible Church, we believe in the power of God. Okay, here's my thoughts. Here's the, here's the methodology. We embrace the doctrines of grace. We embrace the doctrines of grace. We believe that salvation is all of us. I'm sorry. Let's check that. Reverse that. We believe that salvation is all of God. And it is none of us. It was God that chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. 1-3. When people believe the gospel, it's only because God had first appointed them to eternal life. Acts 13:48. The Gentiles heard this. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, over the years, I've heard some say that such a doctrine often has a sorrowing effect upon people. These doctrines of grace turn people intellectual and cold and hard. Now, maybe the case with some, but in those who turn that way, they're living unfaithfully to their doctrine. Because this is the doctrine that says there's no boasting in self. There's all boasting in God. And all we can do is rejoice. And I know that these doctrines upon my soul have caused me nothing but joy and rejoicing that God, His grace, would choose and elect me and showers love upon me and turn my mind from my sinful ways to turn him and to lead me in the everlasting way. It's just joy. And that's where it ought to be. This week I read a testimony. Doug Loner's daughter. Doug, where are you? You're out there someplace. Wherever you are. I can't even see you. Where are you? Oh, he left. Oh, Linda. I read of your, your daughter-in-law. That's where. That's why I couldn't find him. Him on him. Anyway, um, their daughter and their daughter-in-law Beth wrote a decided, and I'm not sure, you know, maybe this testimony will go around, but she decided she wanted to donate a kidney anonymously. And um, maybe loners, you can correct me when I'm wrong, but somebody she said, I, you know, there's lots of people who need kidney transplants. She's I got two healthy kidneys, and uh, I just want to give one to somebody. And so she let the hospital match it, and it did, and. Let me just read some of her testimony. She said, The week before the surgery, the hospital made the match. Four days prior to the operation, I traveled Northwestern Memorial Hospital again to meet with a surgeon to go through the transplant surgery. The nurse in charge of donor patients said that the hospital had told the recipient that they were getting a kidney and would not have to wait any longer. The nurse said the family was crying. And this was, what, December, late December, December 20th or 15th or something like that. The realization that a family just learned that they were getting a kidney before Christmas and would not have to do dialysis hit me hard, and I choked back the tears. Words cannot describe how happy I was for the family. Then she talked about, you know, at any God could have turned it around and, and said, okay, this surgery's not going to happen, but Beth said, after this point, is thinking about this family who's so crying, joyful, that they're going to get this kidney. She said, I couldn't go back after that point. Then she said, the day after surgery, the recipient asked to meet me. She was in her 30s, a wife and a mother who had been on dialysis for four and a half years while on the kidney transplant waiting list. Dialysis is difficult. I mean, you're going in a couple times 
couple times a week. I think all day just to kind of cleanse your system. My pain and discomfort from surgery paled in comparison to hers while she anxiously waited for a kidney donor. Her brother had also had a kidney transplant and the family had previously suffered through that process. Her genuine thankfulness overwhelmed me and my husband. That's the doctrines of grace. Genuine thankfulness, just overflowing and abounding in love and thanks to God because we needed worse than a kidney. We need a new heart. We were dead and then God gives us a new heart. What can we respond with? No more dialysis for me. Woohoo! Thank you, God. You've given me life and life forever with Him, enjoying the pleasures. That's the doctrines of grace, and that will lead to great joy. So, those who take these doctrines and lead sorrow, they're inconsistent. See, when we come to a faith, it's not because of our effort, it's not because of our choosing, it's because of God's sovereign pleasure. As many as received Him to them, He gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in His name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. John 1, 12 and 13. John goes out of his way. He says, As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. But this wasn't a choice of man. It wasn't a family lineage. It was of God's will that they believed. It's a clear teaching of Jesus. This day when He was walking with the Jews, talking about being the bread of life. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And then he said this, John 6, 64. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You can't come to Christ unless God draws you to him. And then he said this, there are some of you who don't believe. For this reason I said to you, you no one can come to me unless it's been granted him by the Father. You don't believe? <laughs> Because you can't come unless God works first in your heart. That's what Jesus said. The doctrines of grace. That's how it is in life when it comes to salvation. God doesn't choose the strong and the mighty and the wise and intelligent. Rather, as 1 Corinthians says, He's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The weak things of the world to shame what's strong. God did so with a purpose. He wants to make sure that in our salvation, nobody has reason to boast. Because 1 Corinthians 1.30, it's by His doing you're in Christ Jesus. God does it. It's His work. It's grace. It's His power over us. It's His power over our souls. Maybe the clearest passage in all the Bible that speaks about this is Romans 9. Romans 9.18 says this, and this is the freedom of God. Okay? He has mercy on whom He desires, and He hardens whom He desires. God will have mercy on whom He wants to have mercy. He'll harden whom He wants to harden. And a few verses later, Paul comes back to the power of God. And this brings us back to Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Nothing's too difficult for you. He's the potter, we're the clay. Does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Of course a potter can, right? What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so, right? That means allowing and enduring the, the wrath against himself from sinful men. What if he did that? And he did so with the purpose that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared for glory even us. That's what God has done. His mercy and kindness, he endures 
wicked sinners who are blaspheming him. And he does so so he might show the greatness of his glory to vessels of mercy. And he can do that because he's the potter. We have every right to take this clay and to make it into fine china, which we use only on special occasions. And we have every right to take this clay and to make it into a toilet bowl, which we use commonly. We can do that for a potter. And God can do that because he's God, because we believe in the power of God. We embrace the doctrines of grace. All right. Third point this morning, and I need to go fast. We believe thirdly in the power of the gospel. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. It's a clear verse that speaks the power of the gospel. I'm trying to find verses that just link things, and this is linked as clear as can be. It's Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There it is. There's power in the gospel, and we believe in the power of the gospel. You might think, well, what a strange thing that is. When we can imagine power in the the message of the President of the United States who with words can shake national economies, we can understand power in a magnetic personality who promises health, wealth, and prosperity. We can understand power that goes along with a large assembly of people. I mean, that's what makes the Super Bowl so powerful is that hundreds of millions of people across the globe will watch that game tonight. We can understand power of the air show and these jets fly by at great speed with great power. And the gospel's none of those things. The gospel isn't spoken in large part by rich, famous, and powerful people. In great measure, the message of the gospel isn't health, wealth, and prosperity. It's a, a life of suffering and torment. Take up your cross. Be willing to die. Ready to follow me. Give up all your possessions. It's the call of the gospel. There are few who believe the gospel. Not great crowds. Great crowds aren't going to bring honor to the gospel because it's not going to be it's not going to be the case. There are few that are saved. The gospel doesn't bring great might and power and strength like these jets. But the gospel is powerful. You say, what's the gospel? Here's what it is. Some of us were sinners headed to damnation. To be judged by an infinitely holy God. Nothing we could do to save ourselves. All we have is terrifying expectation of judgment. But because of God's great love, He sent a Son to rescue sinners like us. His name's Jesus. He lived a sinless life. Nevertheless, He was despised and forsaken of men. He was carried away to execution as a common criminal, even though He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. Spoke the truth throughout His whole life. So the Lord died upon the cross. Something marvelous took place. The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Jesus Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. And through His death, Jesus conquered death. And to receive forgiveness of sins, we simply repent from our sins, believe in Jesus. We, come, we don't come to, to God with all these good works. Hey, look at how good I am. We don't come to God with religious reputation. I'm a deacon in the church. We don't come to Him and beauty. Look at how pretty I am. We don't come with talent saying, look at all the things I can do for you, God. We don't offer anything to God for our salvation except, well, we do offer something. What do we offer? We offer our sin. We say, here's our sin. I need saving from this. And we give it to Jesus and He gives us His righteousness. That's the gospel. We simply come to God confessing our sins, confessing our need of Christ. And the amazing thing of the gospel is that God actually receives us. He redeems us and reconciles us to Himself. 
It's the gospel. Powerful. It's the greatest story ever told. It's the greatest news you'll ever hear that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and raised the third day according to the scriptures. He appeared to many after his death. And there's power in this message. This simple message has turned drunkards into respectable citizens. This message has turned homosexuals into straight men and women. This message has turned idolaters into God worshippers. This message has turned demon-possessed men to be spirit-controlled men exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. This simple message has turned the worst of sinners into the greatest of saints. The Apostle Paul, Augustine, John Newton. Testimony goes on and on. This morning it finds you entrapped in your sin. The message of Christ crucified is sufficient to give you strength to overcome that sin. In fact, you know, I'll say it more clearly than that. If you're engulfed in sin today, the gospel's your only hope for overcoming that sin. Well, before we continue on, I want to make a crucial point here in Romans 1. The gospel isn't just for unbelievers. Many times we can think that. Unbelievers, they need the gospel. What do we need? Well, we need teaching and discipleship. No, no, no. We need the gospel. In fact, look what Paul said in verse 15. For my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Who's he writing to? This is to you. Who's he writing to? The church in Rome. Who are the church in Rome? Verse 7. To those who are beloved of God in Rome, call the saints. These are Christians, believers, sanctified, pure ones. And he's saying, I have a great desire to preach the gospel to you Christians. You say, why is that? Aren't they saved? Do they need the gospel? Yeah, they need the gospel. Just like you need the gospel. Just like I need the gospel. As believers in Christ, we can have bad days. We wake in the morning, rush off to work without giving any thought to God. At work, grumbling, complaining at our boss, laughing at the dirty jokes that are told. From a mile, slip words ought never to come from a mile. We arrive home grumpy and then waste two hours in front of the television, go to bed grumpy. Christians have days like this. They do. What we need on those days is a reminder of the gospel that our standing with God isn't based upon our performance on that day. It's not. Our standing with God is based solely upon the the righteousness of God in Christ. And that will give joy to the downtrodden heart. It will give us great hope. It will give us great reason to rejoice. The Christians also have good days. When they wake an hour before their alarm clock and they dutifully get up, shower and spend an hour alone in the Word and prayer with God, head off to work rejoicing all day long Submitting to their employers. Submitting to the human authorities. After work, meeting with a friend. Having an opportunity to share the gospel. After dinner, willingly serving our wives by cleaning up after dinner. Leading our family in a time of Bible reading and prayer. After a day like that, we can easily fall asleep thinking highly of ourselves. God, I thank you. You made me a righteous man. You know what? If that's you and you have a day like that, you need the gospel. You need it badly. You need that reminder that your standing before God isn't based on your religious performances. Rather, your standing before God is based upon the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account. The message will humble us 
It will remind us. It, it, will, it will bring us back again to our hope in the Savior, not in our own righteousness. And Paul was eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome because there's power in the gospel. In fact, so much so that Paul made the gospel the first priority. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. He said this, I delivered to you as of first importance. This is the first importance. This is the primary thing. I'm talking to you Corinthians that Christ died for our sins. And then he goes on. But here's the gospel. Look, this is the first important thing that he did. I'm sharing with you the gospel of Christ. That Christ died for our sins. Chapter 1, 15, verse 1. This is the gospel. Christ dying. Christ crucified. You might, you might summarize all that by just saying Christ crucified is the gospel and all the implications that flow from that. And he made that first importance when he went to Corinth. But you know what? When Paul was in Corinth, it was more than first priority. It was the only priority. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It's the only priority. In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul said this. I determined, while I was with you, Corinthians, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. When Paul was among the Christians, he was always talking about the gospel. He was always talking about the death of Jesus. For Paul, the cross was everything. He said in Galatians 6.14, May it never be that I should boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul was among the Corinthians, he was speaking nothing but Christ and crucified. Now, it doesn't mean that's the only sentence he said. It means that everything he said was filtered through the lens of the cross. The cross was the center, focus of everything that he did. Everything he said. So why would he do that? Why would Paul make the cross so center? Here it is. And this might, this might come as a surprise to you. Paul focused his time and effort upon the cross because Paul was into church growth. Paul was in a church growth, so he focused on the cross. He wanted the church in Corinth to be as strong as it possibly could be, so he focused all of his energy upon that thing and that thing alone, which will give strength to the church, is the gospel of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 17. Look what Paul says. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. I came to preach the gospel. That's why I was sent. Here's what he says. He says, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ should be made void. In other words, Paul, as Paul would drift from the message of the gospel by, say, presenting the gospel softly, or by holding back some of the full implications of the gospel, or by being clever in the way in which he presented the gospel, or by preceding his message with a great hyped-up worship band that brings a lot of people, people really like, or to having some skits and drama that are really creative and witty that people might like. He said, if you do that, the cross of Christ is voided. If I come in cleverness of speech, I'm going to void the cross and the power to build and grow the church will be gone. It's a cross that strengthens and builds and grows the church. You want to have church growth? You preach the cross and you focus on the cross of Christ. Now, if you do these things, you might bring a big crowd of people. A lot of people might fill a church building, but church growth hasn't happened because you've voided the cross. 
Because Paul said very clearly in chapter 2 of how he came, he did not come in superiority of speech. He didn't come with superiority of wisdom. His methodology of doing church wasn't a great, wise methodology. He said he came rather with weakness and fear and much trembling. He said, verse 4, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. I wasn't trying to persuade you with deep words of reasonings. He said, rather, I just came with demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So the gospel would come forth, the Christ crucified would come forth, there was going to be genuine power in that. And he did so with a specific purpose that, look down there in verse 5, that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. He wanted to make sure that he didn't do anything to distract from the power of the cross. Because, see, when people speak with great eloquent words, they run in the danger of eclipsing the message because people are more persuaded by the messenger than by the message itself. When people have figured out this great way to do church with this methodology that works without focusing on the cross, they might get a lot of people because it works to bring in people, but they voided the cross. When people speak with great persuasive wisdom, they run the danger of overshadowing the message of the cross because people might be enamored with the show and the wisdom rather than being enamored by the message itself. And so when Paul came to Corinth, he made sure that it wasn't his great eloquence, it wasn't his great wisdom, it wasn't his great intelligence drew people. He said, in weakness and in fear and much trembling I came. And I came specifically so that your faith might be in God. Wouldn't rest on my wisdom. Wouldn't rest on the way Rock Valley Bible Church does it, but it would rest upon God Himself. And here's the big implication for us. Okay, I've gone way over. I hope that you forgive me today. We believe in the power of the words, so we preach expositionally. We believe in the power of God, so we embrace the doctrines of grace. Finally, we believe in the power of the gospel, so we focus on the cross of Christ. Rock Valley Bible Church, we will speak without apology of the cross of Christ. We'll focus our attention continually on the cross. We will sing of the cross. We will meditate upon the cross. We'll pray in light of the cross. Everything has got to be centered around the cross. We need to preach nothing other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Simple reasons, because it's powerful. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. The word of of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Right? To those in the world out there, they look at us. Those guys are wasting their time on Sunday morning. They could be at the golf course. Or they could go skiing. They could be at the ski hill this morning. Why are you there? It's foolishness to us. But to those who are being saved, what is the gospel? What is the message of the cross? It is power. That's what it says, 1 Corinthians 1.18. But to us who are being saved. And how are we being saved? By the gospel. The gospel of God is powerful for salvation to bring us to that end day. That's why we need the gospel. We find our strength in the cross. We find our hope in the cross. We find our joy in the cross. We find our meaning for life in the cross. We find our example for living in the cross. We love the cross. It is power in our life. There are others who will look to us and say, we're wasting our church. But you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because we found our power right there in the cross. We believe in the power of the gospel. So the cross of Christ will be forever centered at Rock Valley Bible Church. Well, there are core beliefs that drive our methodologies. The power of the Word drives the way we preach expositionally. The power of God drives how we believe in the doctrines of grace. And the power of the Gospel drives how we focus everything upon the cross of Christ. 
So let's pray. Lord, I pray you dig these things deep in our mind. I know some of these things might be challenging to some people here. I pray they'd search the scriptures to see if they are so. I pray the Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would come and convict hearts and show and illumine truth. And I would pray that these things would be core beliefs at Rock Valley Bible Church, that all of us would embrace them and realize why it is we do church the way we do it. It's because our belief in your word, our belief in your power, our belief in um, the gospel. So help us in these ways. We need your help. Well, one way we can keep the cross center and focus is by celebrating the Lord's Supper. We do it about every month at Rock Valley Bible Church, mostly based upon the messages and what message would be appropriate, especially appropriate, so we consider the cross of Christ all over the Bible and it comes up. As I just look, I say every four to six weeks, which which Sunday be best? We focus on that way. However, it is interesting that um, over the past several years, one of the things we've done at Rock Valley Bible Church is during the Sundays in Lent, a lot of people give up things for Lent. So they try to focus themselves upon Jesus and repentance. It's a good thing. But what we've done at Rock Valley Bible Church every year is celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday to remember Christ specifically as we remember and look forward to the resurrection of Christ. And it helps keep us out of a rut because then it's for like a month and a half we can get in this rut where we celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Okay? But we don't do that all year long so it doesn't just become old and commonplace like that's what we always do. And so I just pray that you all would, would be ready for that, anticipate that. We're going to start this morning, actually, remembering the cross through celebrating the Lord's Supper. And we'll do it every Sunday until Easter. Next Sunday, this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, and so we'll start that. Just every, We'll try to be creative about how we do that so we don't fall into a rut. But simply, all we do at the Lord's Supper is remember Christ and His death. As Jesus told us, we need to do this in remembrance of Him. As we take the bread, drink the cup, there's nothing special in these things, but they draw us our attention to the cross. And as I've spoken much about the cross, I just say, you think about those things you've heard and reflect upon the power of the cross. Reflect upon Christ, all He's done for your soul. And if you believe in Him and trust in Him, boy, take the bread, take the cup. But if you're not a believer this morning, if you're walking perhaps in sin and walking unworthy, the call of Christ, just let it pass. It's not something you should let pass all the time. Prepare your hearts and be ready for that. You know, those in Corinth, when Paul wrote those words of admonishment to examine their lives, were doing unloving things in the body, right? Being totally selfish, eating themselves, getting drunk while others didn't have enough food to eat. Just showing unlove. He says, if, if you're doing that, don't, don't take of the Lord's Supper. But if you're walking before Him with a good conscience and and clinging to Him. Even this morning, maybe as I'm sitting, just repent of it. Say, God, in the Gospel, let me focus there so I might find my strength to, to rid myself of these sins. Then trust that and take the bread or take the cup. So, Andy, you come and lead us in